Thank you for listening to the Divine Nobodies Podcast with Eric Ajna and Jennifer Lynn. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe so you never miss a show. If you're on Instagram, please follow us at Divine Nobodies Podcast and join our ever-growing community of lightworkers and spiritual visionaries. Together, we can raise the frequency of our planet and bring in a new era of awakening and inner standing. Welcome to our tribe. And now your hosts, Eric Ajna and Jennifer Lynn. Hello, thank you for tuning in to Divine Nobody's podcast. How are you doing, Jen? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very good. I actually have something really interesting I want to share with you. A funny meme that actually I came across, but I wanted to share it with you. Okay. See what see what kind of shoes I can get back from you okay. regarding this. It says, what did the Buddhist monk say to the man at the hot dog stand? Is this vegan? Uh, is that your answer? Yeah. Oh, uh, no, no. I w- he probably <laughs> did say that. He probably did say that in response to what it is that I'm about to tell you. Mm-hmm. But uh, what did the Buddhist monk say to the man at the hot dog stand? He says, make me one with everything. <laughs> <laughs> that's really cute isn't that oh, funny that's a good one yeah that's it's a good one. one for the cronies you look like a uh, nice bottle of sriracha today by the way yeah, jen because i'm feeling spicy you're feeling spicy <laughs> feeling spicy fries yeah i can put red lipstick on yeah to match do you, yeah do you do you mm-hmm. like sriracha i actually like sriracha on popcorn really mm-hmm have oh, you ever I love had sriracha and everything. Oh, Food yeah. pizza. I, I'm kind of funny with it. I only like it on certain things. I'm more of like a, I like more of a vinegar hot sauce, like Cholula. Or, you know, oh, yeah. I like them all for pranks. just different reasons, but I love me some hot sauce. I think it's sort of like I probably inherited that from my father because he's really into hot sauce too, which segues into, actually, I don't know how it segues, but I feel like it's affiliated. But we're going to talk about something really deep today, Jen. Deep dish pizza. Deep dish. You know, I'm more of a thin crust, but... I'll yeah. do my best to keep it. Well, that's up. the thing. You got when you go and you <clears throat> order pizza out, it's always good to have options, you know? You can get like a deep dish or you can get uh, a thin crust for all the people that show up. Who knows? You may actually try the deep dish and end up liking it. Maybe. You Let's know? go for it. Yeah. So different things to explore. So um, this kind of came into my field. Um, I, I study a lot in psychology. Um, tried to actually ventured a little bit away from the esoteric, but this kind of falls in line with um, the the new age stuff as well, which is the the realm of psychology. And I know this is something that me and Jen ascribe to just in a lot of different ways. Jen has some friends that are um, clinical psychologists, so um, she also has done her own research in the field, and I myself have as well. I mean, if you're into Eastern and Western practices, it's one of those things that you sort of integrate in with your spirituality. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to discuss a fellow, and then we're going to go over this fellow's um, archetypes. Well, his name is Carl Jung. Carl Jung, he's a Swedish psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. He actually founded analytical psychology, which is a little different than the psychology um, that we're used to, which is like dialectical behavioral therapy. Although I think people use sort of like Jungian archetypes and DBT. So oh, totally. Jung's work, they do? They do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So just to, we're not going to go over his, his whole history, but Carl Jung, his work has been influential in the fields of psycho- psychiatry, anthropology, archaeology, literature, philosophy, psychology. This guy does a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. And among the central concepts of analytical psychology is individuation. And we'll go over just kind of a brief synopsis of what that is. The title of the podcast that we're going to go into today is uh, The Four Phases of Life According to Carl Jung. The process of individuation, we're going to go into that first. It's the lifelong psychological process of differentiation of the self out of each individual's conscious and unconscious elements. So Carl Jung considered it to be the main task of human development, and he created some of the best-known psychological concepts, including things that we're familiar with. Synchronicity, mm-hmm. we talk yep. about synchronicity a lot, how, how two things sort of pair up together within a certain time frame. 
archetypal phenomena, which we're actually going to talk about, the collective unconscious, what we're going to talk about, and then extroversion and introversion. So he's one of the first people that coined the terms introversion and extroversion. So if you find yourself falling into the realm of one of those two, you can thank Carl Jung for that because mm-hmm. he's the boss that brought that shit into our field. Awesome. Right. So Carl Jung taught, well, he didn't teach, but he actually was a student of uh, Sigmund Freud for a long time. I and think I did know that. I feel like yeah. I've learned that at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And they were sort of like the, the I guess, worthy adversaries for each other. And yeah. at some point, Carl Jung broke off from Sigmund Freud because he, well, Sigmund Freud didn't actually agree with a lot of the sort of concepts and ideas that Carl yeah, Jung yeah. had. Yeah, his ideas. Mm-hmm. Because right. he, he tended to tread more into the esoteric metaphysical realm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, clinical psychology, they're basically almost like scientists. They see that almost as like pseudoscience. Right. So when Carl Jung came in the field and started talking about the collective unconscious, it's like Sigmund Freud checked out. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And I've never really been a big fan of Freud. I mean, uh, a lot of his, uh, his, I guess, theories about clinical psychology has to do with like repressed and oppressed sexual sort of orientation. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the guy at one point in our history actually wanted to legalize cocaine as a way to treat people with psychological disorders. Can you believe that? <laughs> I know people who have psychological disorders because of cocaine, but not the other yeah. way around. <laughs> yeah. Sigmund Freud, he, he uh, was one of those, one of those people. So I, I imagine really controversial. I mean, at the time it probably didn't seem so far-fetched, yeah. but I, I like Carl Jung because he has his basis more in sort of like a, a heart-based spiritual dimension. Yeah. And I, I mean, can, I, when Freud was around, medicine just really wasn't that evolved. So mm-hmm. They didn't know. <laughs> They're just guessing. They're like, oh, yeah, this seems to work. Let's try it. Snake yeah, oil, let's give them a few shit. lines and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, look and, how productive I am. Oh, I know. In, even successors, even nowadays in analytical psychology, actually changed the term collective unconscious to something that sounds more sciencey, mm-hmm. which is autonomous psyche and an objective psyche. And um, I guess they just want to turn away from the sort of new age woo-woo stuff altogether. But one thing I brought that, the reason why I wanted to bring that up is what we're going to talk about on the pod today is archetypal phenomenon, which were basically archetypes. So Carl Jung was very, very famous for his archetypes. Mm -hmm. And the four that we're going to go over are only four of an entire stream. He wrote books and books about these archetypes and what these archetypes are. They're driven by mythology, ancestry, cultural, and social conditioning, right? He noticed that in his research, actually into Eastern and Western practices, that people like Jesus, Buddha, all these different figures that we see as sort of like these Eastern sages or just um, spiritual figures altogether, they all seem to have a very common theme, I guess, the dynamic of their spirituality. He tried to figure out, well, what is that about? It almost seemed like to him that it is part of, there's an inherent part of the human experience that involves archetypal sort of themes. Mm-hmm. And you can also even look at the tarot as falling in line with this too, because you have the fool in tarot, and then mm-hmm. you have the trickster in Carl Jung's archetypes. And basically what these archetypes are, it's like the the whole forum of human experience that a person goes through from a child, through an adolescent, to an adult, to an elderly sort of person. Yeah. Notice that a lot of people tend to go through a lot of the same sort of archetypal themes, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah, the persona, this is ego, what, trickster, shadow, all those things, yeah. Exactly. The, and that, what is that the stages of alchemy, I think is what he calls it. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got like a lot of different stages or, or archetypes um, that maybe at, at some point we can go into the podcast and dive deeper into. But the interesting thing or the most important thing about these archetypes is they make up the collective, what he would call the collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. And the collective unconscious 
just to sum it up and to bring in the, the topic of what we're going to talk about, the collective unconscious can almost be seen as the ego. Deepak Chopra would actually consider it the collective mind. And I think in more, I guess, modern times, we can actually see the internet as the collective unconscious because it contains, it's the database and the index of all experience and all realms of conditioning. Mm -hmm. And he believed that we inherited this. It's a realm that we can't really tap into intellectually, but we can tap into more metaphysically in our bodies. Like for example, and I wanted to share this story with you, Jen, because this is this falls in line with the the realm of conditioning. So, and I'm not talking about things that we uh, inherit through genetics. I'm talking about things that yeah. we inherit almost in a cellular level in our bodies. Because at the very core, we come from our parents. Okay, so like right? epigenetics. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's something that we talked about before. And mm-hmm. there are things that we inherit from our parents, not necessarily, for example, like if your father was in the war, you're not going to be born with a recollection of memories of the war, mm-hmm. but you could be born with the recollection in your body of what that stress may feel like. Yeah, PTSD. Of, exactly, PTSD. And um, these are things that we are unconscious of, but they manifest in our bodies and our lives throughout our lives. There are some people that are predisposed to anxiety, some people that are predisposed to more of a hypersexual orientation with other people. Mm-hmm. And just an example of this that I want to bring up is the story of my grandfather and my grandmother. My grandmother was a prostitute. Okay. Right. And my grandfather was in the war. Okay. He fought in World War II. And how I feel like that is sort meet? of integrated in, what's that? How'd they meet? How did, oh, they met in the bar. Yeah. They met in the bar? Was she, they met in so the she bar. was working? So they met yeah. while she was working or she exactly. was a prostitute because he was in the war and she needed to take care of herself? Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they both, and there was a consolidated story because this is a story that are passed down over, you know, long periods of time. And uh, even my my family members don't have too much detail as to kind of how that went about, but I do know that she was a prostitute. And I do know that he was in the war, right? So we can have links or promiscuity in family members, which I noticed in my lineage on my father's side, that a lot of people in my family had fallen victim to hypersexuality, which is like they're very promiscuous. Mm-hmm. They've gone in and out of relationships. And it isn't even just the, the, the act of uh, sexual intercourse with other people. At the very basis of this is sort of like a, a deeper behavior that speaks to codependency and the yearning to feel loved as a result of emotional pain. I was just about to say that. Yeah. Not exactly. those words exactly, but yeah. It, there's yeah. so many other things that come into play whenever someone is hypersexual. Um, exactly. Not just epigenetics. I mean, there's a lot of emotional things behind that. Right, right. And so how I feel related to that is one, I can see it in my family that mm-hmm. I, they've had a history of promiscuity. They have a history of, of uh, going from relationship to relationship and also a history of like drug abuse as a way to sort of assuage the pain that they may be feeling. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, at least in the beginning, aren't entirely sure where this pain comes from or right. where this trauma comes from. So how it relates to me is I was really hypersexual when I was young. Oh, you were? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I was just very, uh, very promiscuous and like I uh, explored my sexuality. And maybe you could say that that's a part of your, any, any youth's experience, mm-hmm. you know, but it was one of those things that I sought a certain type of love because I didn't feel that I got it from my, maybe my parents or my family as a child. That can be one thing. Yeah. That's why I was promiscuous looking back. That's how, that that was the same for you? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was promiscuous when I was young, but it was, it was because I just had no love at home. So 
and yeah. major daddy issues. My dad was yeah. totally unavailable when I was younger. Yeah. And you can see how not even just the, her, the, her, the hereditary part of it, but that mm-hmm. it rings in the part where you're the way that your parents raise you as, mm-hmm. as a result of how their parents raise them. Right, so it doesn't even have to be something that is uh, like intrinsically in your veins as part of genes, but it can be something as a way that is taught by your parents. Totally. That same type of suffering. I mean, I'm one of seven, so I'm pretty sure that it was also inherited. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure that's we're that's, rabbits I in think, this family. Yeah, I think I think the where your parents' bodies are upon conception. I'm talking about their health, mm-hmm. the things that they're into, the things that they may be ingesting in other bodies or every bit is responsible for how our bodies develop in the womb. Mm-hmm. You know, you have, you know, obviously like uh, children that are born addicted to certain types of drugs. So if your family, wherever your parents are, when they were, you were conceived, I personally feel that you could also inherit whatever physical pain that they may have been going through at that time, uh, whatever addictions that they may be going through. And that's sort of an example of how the collective unconscious instills itself and down the sort of family lineage. So I have the war inside of me. And this is another thing that I wanted to bring up is that I always had this fascination with World War II. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't care anything about it. Like it's not actively a part of my life, but for whatever reason, when I was younger, I was just so fascinated with it. I mean, it's and, a, that's a very fascinating war for a lot of people. I mean, not just because a lot of people were involved in it, but um, it's just very fascinating how someone could have that kind of control. You're exactly that, person, kind of, that yeah. kind of control over, um, over the masses. Right. And it's, I mean, I think that's probably the reason why it's taught because it's, it's definitely something worthy of knowing in order to understand your just history as a country mm-hmm. and what freedom actually means based off of where you're at in the world. Mm-hmm. But there was just something, it was, there was some deeper curiosity that I had to it mm-hmm. that I didn't understand because I was like six years old and I was like really fascinated by the war. Yeah. I should have maybe been playing with toys or I should have been doing something else, but there was something in me that wanted to pick up National Geographics and try and figure out what all of this was about. Mm-hmm. And another way that this connects is that through a younger part of my life, maybe a teenage part of my life, I, I came down with uh, this sort of form of panic disorder, mm-hmm. this baseline level of anxiety that I didn't know where it came from. Of course, mm-hmm. when you're young, you don't understand the dynamics of that. So you sort of bottle it down into the shadow, which is another Carl Jung archetype. And the shadow is the collective unconscious. But I feel like that could also be tethered to some trauma and some PSD that maybe my grandfather had experienced in the war. Mm-hmm. You know, stuff like that. And I may never know, but the way that Carl Jung says that it manifests in the body is that through symbols and okay. metaphors. So when you're having dreams, sometimes you'll dream about certain symbols and um, those can point you to uh, certain parts of your family history. There are times when I've dreamt about being in the war. There are times when I've dreamt of being a promiscuous person. Now, this is just one sort of perspective because Carl Jung obviously came from a different time than we are now. We have a lot more information to share. But it is interesting because I not only see it in myself, but I see how trauma, not even just at the individual level from like a family's perspective, but you can see how our cultural sort of traumas and our cultural conditioning is worked into that collective unconscious that we have because I'm not just my family. I'm also the product of the environment that they were a part of, like the Mm -hmm. society that they were a part of. And that is where the archetypal sort of journey takes place because this society programs you to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. It programs you to uh, awaken to certain things in yourself in a certain way. And this is when we get into the four phases of life. Because the four phases of life is the archetypal journey that every human being at some point goes through. Me and Jen, we're going to go into it, but I wanted to start off with And they a can quote. overlap too. 
And yeah. you can also return to an old phase that maybe you thought you had overcome. So exactly. just based on what's happening in your life. Kind of like the chakras, right? Yeah. yeah I feel go like I'm in all four of these at all time. Yeah. I do. I have a couple of examples. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it, I, I feel exactly the same way when it comes to a few of these. And just before we get into it, we'll go over just some more little tidbits of information that I found that I thought was interesting. He was into the occult and witchcraft. I didn't know this that. This Carl Jung guy. Yeah. He was also into alchemy, which you mentioned, the, the archetypes of alchemy. And he also wrote a book on UFOs. Really? Interesting. Yeah. I want to read yeah. that. Yeah. Do you know what the title is? I, I'm not entirely sure. I can Google it. I'm sure yeah, you can Google it up, but just the fact that this guy, I mean, this was a long time ago. He was writing books about UFOs. That's so crazy. you know that his 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 awareness was a lot more expanded. Mm -hmm. More, I imagine, more expanded than people that are in the field of psychology, you know? Mm -hmm. Like he's looking at all possibilities. And in a lot of ways, you can see a lot of the Eastern influence and a lot of what he talks about. Yeah. And the one thing I will, did want to note is that he was also a loner as a child. To a distant, he had a very, very distant father, and his mother was actually mentally ill and was institutionalized when he was two. Ooh, yikes. You know? Yeah. So it kind of paved the way for a very, very interesting journey for him. Oh, my gosh. So, uh, and the, <clears throat> the practices in the mental health field back then were just horrific, too. Oh, it's yeah. horrible. Yeah. To even think about. Mm -hmm. We'll open it up with a quote that I thought was really interesting that sums up um, kind of what we're going to go through. It says, I wish I can speak in his voice because he has such an awesome little Swedish voice. It's mm -hmm. like, your childhood and extreme, that sounds more Russian, I think. Yeah. Childhood and, ex okay, I'll say it. it says, childhood and extreme old age are, of course, utterly different. And yet they have one thing in common, submersion in unconscious psychic happenings. Since the mind of a child grows out of the unconscious, its psychic processes, though not easily accessible, are not as difficult to discern as those of a very old person who is sinking again into the unconscious and who is progressively vanishes and, prog and who progressively vanishes within it. Childhood and old age are the stages of life without any conscious problems. And that was from Carl Jung. The reason why I found that quote so interesting is it's sort of like the story of like the serpent putting its tail in its mouth. Yeah. And it's kind of like the story of uh, mm. reincarnation where mm. we start from this sort of infantile space, we venture into the world and then we return right back to source. And he's saying that the, the experience of a child and the experience of old age are relatively the same in terms of innocence. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So the first phase, Jen, is the athletic stage. And I, I kind of see this very, very similar to that of like the base root chakra uh, and up to the sacral. What mm -hmm. do you think? Yeah, no, I agree with that. So, and the part about this is that your external is more important than your internal. Yeah. And they say that this is happening around like adolescence, early adulthood. But I also think that this corresponds with your sexual development, right? Because whenever you're obsessed with how you look, that's because you're right around that time is when you're becoming interested in the opposite sex and you want them to be interested in you. Your hormones are changing. And um, especially in early adulthood, you want to kind of like look your best to attract the best mate at that point. Yeah. So uh, I think about to put this in current day context, right? I think that it's important to always have one toe in the water as far as this is concerned. Yeah. So here's a story. What do you mean by one toe in the water? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the story and then okay. you'll, you'll understand what I mean. So okay. my girlfriend, she, when her and her husband got together, they were both in good shape. She was really beautiful, took care of herself. You know, as time went on, um, 
she was less concerned with trying to find a mate or impress her mate. And the way she was showing up for him was in a different way. It was as a mom, less caring about her physical appearance and just taking care of the kids, mom bod Mm. in full effect. But the same thing happened to him, dad bod in full effect. I mean, they weren't interested in showing up for each other anymore in this way. So what happened? The relationship starts to fall apart because they're losing a sexual connection. It ultimately ended in divorce. And this is a really, really simple thing to fix, right? Like had they been taking care of themselves physically and kept the sexual attraction alive, perhaps they would still be together. So I don't know. I think that maybe... And it's kind of funny how that how it cycles over, right? So then she's single. So now she's single and she's looking for a new mate. And guess what? She's working out, getting her hair done, putting makeup on, waking up early, getting dressed, you know, not just laying around the house and and pajamas all day anymore, you know, yeah. because then she's back in this phase to try to attract a mate again. So I think keeping one toe in the water in this athletic stage is healthy oh, for a relationship. Yeah, so and, and I think it's... Where. I think you embody, I think integration or uh, individuation that, that Carl Jung talks about is about integrating all of these, mm-hmm. right? So always having one foot in the water. And the perfect example of kind of like the back and forth that you're talking about is, um, I give an example as uh, my mother, for example, or any mother out there, for mm-hmm. let's just say, put it this way. So say you have a kid and you're 17 years old or 16 years old. You're not at the height of your development yet, right? right. There's a lot of experience that you have to go through in terms of getting your heart broken, understanding what love means, uh, responsibility as an adult. So what happens Mm -hmm. when you have a kid, you are taken out of the realm of adolescence and you are forced into the realm of being an adult. And what do you do when you have kids? You have to, in a compassionate way, hopefully, set your needs aside for the, the needs of your child. And in some ways, some people stop developing individually on their own Mm -hmm. and they become, they, they begin developing as a mother. Right. And so that's good because you're there for your kid and you're dedicating your time to your child. But what happens when those kids get older or those parents divorce and somehow they're separated from the kid and they go back out into the world and want to have a relationship again? There's something that I noticed in my mother, for example, because we're all older. Yeah. You know, and at a certain point, a mother never stops being a mom, but Mm -hmm. her raising you is something that sort of wanes over time. And she has to come to terms with the fact that. We're older, and she's not so much in that role anymore. And what happened is, and she's still from what I've noticed, and she still has needs as a woman, right? But what I noticed because she had kids so young, is that she set aside the seriousness of the mother role that society told her that she had to follow, and she fell back in line with her seventeen and eighteen year old self, oh, because that's where she stopped developing. Yeah, you know, individually as a person, and in the yeah. hope is that you can integrate both as you go along. Mm-hmm. But just her specifically, she was part of a different time. I'm noticing right. as she gets older, she's so much younger and she's so much more childlike and so much more teenager. Like I have to tell my mom not to curse sometimes. <laughs> you know, cute. I gotta like uh-huh. tell my mom like, "Hey, you need to calm your ass down." You know, <laughs> and that's that's a really beautiful thing that mm-hmm. she is in a comfortable space where she could actually go back and start living those those moments of her life that she didn't when she was a kid. So it's interesting how that sort of thing circles around again for some people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when he was describing this phase, it kind of um, sounds a little narcissistic, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I I had a very different experience whenever I was going through this phase. 
because I had such terrible skin. I had cystic acne where it was like purple and swollen and I would be in the grocery store and people would move their kids like away from me so they wouldn't say anything. I mean, it was what? just- because of your face? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh wow. It was really, really, really bad. So um, I, yes, I was obsessed with the way I looked, but not in a positive way. It wasn't something I was proud of, right? So I was, I was obsessed with looking at it and praying that it would get better. And so it, yeah, it was totally there, just not in a narcissistic way. And then, okay, so let's fast forward to when I'm in college, I, you know, had my own health insurance at that time. So I was able to go to the dermatologist and gone on Accutane and it cleared up. So whenever that happened, I stopped worrying so much about my looks, but at the same time I went into college at when I was uh, 16. So I was younger than all of my classmates. So then it turned into, I wasn't as developed as them. I didn't have any yeah. boobs. I still look like a little girl. You know, I didn't have the acne anymore. And I was thinking, oh, now that my face is cleared up, I'll be, you know, able to find someone to date and, you know, meet a boy and whatever. And that's right. really not what happened. So then that's whenever I realized that where I could compete was with my grades and compete in school. And then yeah. that's kind of what pushed me into the next phase, the warrior phase. And that's like yeah. your competition phase, because that's really all, all that I had. I didn't really have that athlete phase as a young person. Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, let me, let me ask you this because it, because it's an archetypal thing, uh, the athletic phase, just to clarify with you guys exactly what it is. These are materialistic sort of endeavors. These are what would, uh, the mind frame of a child would be very selfish, very self-centered. You find yourself looking at in the mirror. Carl Jung says that most people get, most narcissistic people get stuck in this phase. Mm -hmm. So let's just say whoever it is that you were when you were like, you know, from two to 13 or whatever, whenever it is that you're young and everybody's gone through this to some degree, but I wanted to ask you, maybe it wasn't a narcissistic phase in the way that we're talking, but do you think that it was a, a possibly narcissistic phase in the fact that you uh, thought everything was about you in the sense that you thought everybody was mad at you or you thought that you felt guilt for the way that you imagine people to perceive you, you know, that type of that different um, sort of like flipping the coin a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I didn't feel guilt about the way people perceived me. Um, I was more embarrassed by the way people perceived me, you know, yeah. and, um, and that did let, let's talk about all the other horrible things that did for my self-esteem from having boys that you like tell you you're the ugliest person I've ever seen and, you know, things like that. And when it's your face, you can't hide it. You know, I mean, yeah. that is what you show to the world. So, yeah. And I think what I'm, yeah. what I'm speaking to is probably what I went through and I don't know if I would consider it narcissism, but there's a period of time where maybe your self-esteem is so low mm -hmm. where you always just feel like if some somebody's mad at you or if somebody says something, you're overanalyzing what they say and you're thinking that everything is about you. Like you're thinking that their anger or like the possibility of them treating you a little differently is about you. So it's not narcissistic in that sort of outspoken extroverted narcissism, mm -hmm. but a sort of introverted narcissism where not everybody is out to get you. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like that, I, that I know a lot of, of people that, that feel that way, you know, that yeah. are like emotional narcissists in, in that way that they feel like everyone yeah. is out to get them. And I, I never really felt that way. I never felt yeah. like everyone was out to get me. It was more, why me? Like I felt sorry for myself a lot. Yeah. Like, oh, that, that, why, why am I going through this? I think we can relate on that because that's exactly how I was. 
because you acknowledge at a really young age that you're different just based yeah. off of your upbringing and based mm -hmm. off of like the family dynamic that you have. And the athletic phase is really important because the athletic phase is sort of like the prerequisite to what you experience in school, mm -hmm. you know, like, because up until you get to school, your base, your consciousness and your level of awareness is your parents. 100%. You know, your feelings are your parents' feelings. Mm -hmm. Everything that you feel is a product of how you feel your parents are treating you. So until you develop a sense of self, which I think happens in the warrior stage, you're going to be always subject to how you identify with your family. So I automatically felt that I was different and that there was something wrong, mainly because there was always something wrong with my father mm -hmm. or mainly because there was something um, wrong with this incessant sort of um, anger and, and sadness that was going on in my family. I thought that was because of me. And so right. that manifested in my life as kind of what you're talking about, sort of like this low self-esteem and not feeling like I was enough, right. you know? And so the athlete is nurtured and actualized through competitive things like school programs, classes and grades and peer-to-peer -peer interaction. Mm -hmm. So schools teach us this, right? This is yeah. something that, that, that schools place into the realm of our consciousness because you have grades, you have sports programs, mm -hmm. you have just the interaction with your peers that seem to be competitive in things like fashion, subculture. Oh, yeah. You don't even have a choice in a lot of ways. This is built into the curriculum. You have to play this game. And I think it comes as a result of the schooling and the conditioning that is brought upon our environment. So that's the collective unconscious that's coming in mm -hmm. that, that uh, Carl Jung's talking about. It's we are forced into this realm of our entire history. We get taught history, we get taught mathematics, we get taught all these things that we learn in school. And those are things that help cultivate this sort of like contributing member of society that we're trying to build. And then that's what we start modeling who we are based off of. Yeah. And then the ego is born. You know? Absolutely. And it's so, so interesting how school totally mimics the workplace. Exactly. It's the same, same shit, just in an adult form. Yeah. And, and the school mimics the, the collective conditioning of our humanity mm -hmm. because it, that school, that school curriculum has all of our suffering as a nation built into it. It has all of our, um, you know, the, our social issues built into it because those mm -hmm. are things that we're taught. So yeah. at this point we become players in the game. And so we fell into like one, at least one of these categories I did. I wasn't so much of a scholar. I was smart, but I fell in more with like subgenres and subcultures and stereotypes. So I was like <laughs> a rock kid to a metal kid to a goth kid. And, you know, I remember this time where I wrestled a lot of feathers at school because I didn't want to fall in line with this whole sort of war, this whole sort of like athletic phase that people were talking about, which was I get sent to the principal's office all the time for being a goth kid and I wore makeup and people thought I was the devil and worship Satan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Know, that whole game. Yeah. And I, I fought it the entire way through because there was something deeper inside of me that knew that this wasn't it. Yeah. You know? Like I, I even was thinking rationally about like, where the fuck am I going to use trigonometry in my life? You know? Yeah. The yeah. only thing, the only thing that you use in everyday life is basic math. I mean, percents. I still know people <laughs> that don't know how to calculate a fucking tip. I'm like, come on. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've worked in, in several organizations where you have really intelligent people. I mean, I worked at JPL. These are like scientists. Mm -hmm. A lot of them still use calculators. You yeah. know, they can't figure out a problem. Like mm -hmm. uh, in, in that sort of traditional pencil and paper sort of way. Yeah. It's like you just, you, the, the brain only wants to gather and collect the things it deems useful. And the one thing that I realized really early on is that it's not really about, uh, I guess it is the application of these things, but it's more about, at least from the school's perspective, how you can problem solve. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I do. Like, I know exactly how you can problem solve. So at this point, what happens is that we develop a sense of self and then maybe we're pushed out into the world and then we enter into the warrior stage. And so the warrior stage to me represents what, what happens after you leave school and the birth of responsibility. And I feel like this is similar to the solar plexus because the solar plexus is about divine will. Mm -hmm. You understand a certain aspect of yourself, where your positioning is in contrast to everybody else. And so you feel compelled to make your mark on society and, you know, reinforce the idea of who it is that you imagine yourself to be in your mind. This is your setting goals phase where you're setting goals, you're in competition with others, you're working on your goals to be the best, to have the most, to be the most accomplished. And um, material desires become more important. Um, It's less about how you look and more about what you have. Um, But how you look definitely comes into play. Um, Oh, yeah. So, yeah, this is, I feel like I got stuck here. I mean, (laughs) I was stuck. I've been stuck here for a long time. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That um, goal setting and hard work, that's just something that is ingrained in you, especially if you're poor. So I I was very poor growing up. So it was all about work hard, work hard, work hard. And um, I didn't have, you know, a college fund. I had to work two jobs in order to go to college. Like everything was very much a decision. So it's interesting when I was reading, when I was reading this, I was like, oh man, I am, I, it it really brought a lot of things to the forefront that I knew about myself, but just kind of like reinforced some things that I needed to work on as this, this phase is so much of your masculine energy taking over and For the ladies out there, like myself, you have to be very careful to not let this overthrow your divine feminine off balance, right? So it's okay to set goals and to work on your goals and want more for yourself and be ambitious. I'm not saying not to do that. I'm just saying to be careful to balance it with activities that help increase your divine feminine energy, right? So stuff like spending time with other women. So if you are catching yourself and noticing that you do not, uh, you're not connecting with other women, um, whether it be your friends or your mom or your sister or your cousins or whatever, um, that's something that you need to work on. You're getting too caught up in your masculine. You need to go back and maybe find your favorite cousin or your favorite friend and start trying to connect with them uh, on a different level again. Um, meditation, yeah. listening to music, dancing, um, doing things for yourself without a purpose. So say, yeah. um, I just did this the other day cause this is something that I'm actively working on is I got a massage for enjoyment, not because I was in pain. <laughs> and normally I finally will say, okay, I need a massage. I'm like so stiff. I can barely move. Cause I sat at my computer all day at my desk. Right. Yeah. So, um, I just went just to, just to get one. So doing that, spending time in nature, trying to work on your divine feminine, if you are very caught up in this kind of stage in your life, which is me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because another part of the Carl Jung's archetypes that's part of worked into this whole journey, um, even at this stage is, especially at the warrior stage, is what he called animus and anima. Yeah. Right. And animus and anima represent basically divine masculine, divine feminine. Mm -hmm. Carl Jung actually believed that the integrated human being that is in individuation has both of these integrated into one, right? right? So like a, a man should have access to his feminine side and a woman should have access to a masculine side. But what happens at the warrior stage and even at the athletic stage is that the schooling system for the most part teaches you to pick one, Yeah. right? If you're a man, these are sort of like the social 
um, cues that you have to follow. Mm -hmm. And if you're a female, these are the social cues that you have to follow. This is worked into the collective unconscious. The, the collective unconscious being that our society has very specific designated areas where women should work and men should work. I yeah. feel like those boundaries are starting to uh, blur a little bit. I feel yeah. like they're starting to integrate more. We're getting into a, a realm in society where equality is a lot more of a thing, and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Because I know a lot more guys now than I ever did back in the day that were more integrated with their feminine side and more women nowadays that are integrated with their masculine. But we still definitely have toxic masculinity, toxic femininity out there. So oh, it's yeah. all about finding balance. Carl Jung felt that the animus and the anima, a part of that journey is to get in touch with your opposite side and to not deny it. Because if you deny it, it becomes the shadow and it becomes... Mm -hmm something that influences you in a negative way in your life. And another thing that I wanted to bring up is that it isn't a bad thing to find yourself still in any one of these stages. I think what the, the, uh, the really important piece of these four stages is that they're just a necessity in order to wake up to the truest, most authentic part of you. Yeah, it's an and awareness. It's just to help create awareness of where you are. Exactly. And, and that, that when I was reading over these and I realized that I'm, uh, there's a part of me in all of these stages right now, yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is just all about awareness. Yeah. And the, 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 even the fact that you're able to acknowledge the fact that you're in all of these stages, you're speaking from awareness. Mm -hmm. Like you're not speaking from ego anymore because the ego only acknowledges these sort of like warrior athletic stages. Mm -hmm. The fact that you're able to even acknowledge that you're in all four of these shows that you're speaking from a different place, like you're speaking from awareness, because awareness is what watches the, 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 these sort of tendencies that we have. So automatically, I think just because you're in, the, you're, you're in this chair on this podcast automatically represents that you're, you've evolved past most of these because mm -hmm. you're able to acknowledge the relevance and the importance of all of them without getting attached to them. Right. You know what I mean? So the warrior stage... And uh, th just to share my sort of like personal story with this, and well, just a, a few more bullet points, is basically represents chasing the American dream that's taught through the collective sort of experience that you have through school. You know, doing what we think that we should be doing and opposed to what our spirit wants and desires. We do this uh, wanting to feel acceptance from, in, from our society and our, our collective environment. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, this, this stage also um, uh, is a very primitive and instinctual one. It has a very survivalist type of mm -hmm. fear-based energy to it. And that fear, I mean, unfortunately, is taught by school. They say, if you do not do this, then you're going to fall below the mark and you're either going to be a degenerate or a non-contributor to society. And the one thing that a student doesn't want is to fall into that. Mm -hmm. So they go on this tireless journey trying to prove themselves worthy and, and also, too, because our family history has worked into this, it's so important that we prove that history wrong as well. Mm -hmm. So if we have a family that they don't graduate college or you have a lot of people that fall into addiction, it becomes there's more of an incentive to make something of yourself in these realms. And this is where you do it. So my personal story is that there was a period in my life where I worked uh, when I was really young. I want to say like eight, um, 18, 19 years old at a mortgage firm. I was surrounded by really young ass millionaires, like 25 year old, 30 year old adults that were making like $50,000 a month yeah, doing a, a paper, no a paper on subprime loans. And these are, this is back, you know, in um, 2008. <laughs> yeah. Like back, back in those mm -hmm. days. Right. And I got into it because my mother at the time worked at Ditech and she was into mortgage and my brother's in the mortgage and I didn't care anything about it, but I was just trying to find my way. So mm -hmm. I ended up accumulating a lot of wealth 
Um, I was a, a processor, so I didn't actually work in uh, like as a loan officer, but it was really long hours, um, very, very tiring work. But the one thing that I did uh, realize from that, and I'm glad that I had that experience, is that I accumulated a lot of wealth for my age. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was hanging out with a lot of people that had lots of money that they not even they knew what to do with it. This was in Orange County back in Irvine. And one thing that I noticed is how very different I was from those people just right off the bat. I was still very much me. I was still into spiritual things. I was still into the subculture that I was a part of. So I almost felt like I was sort of like sleeping with the enemy a lot of the time. Yeah. You know, and the one thing that I realized was just how lost a lot of these people were. They weren't mm-hmm. happy with all the money that they were making. They didn't have time to spend it. They, a lot of them were doing drugs. Like they mm-hmm. were doing lines off the desk at their, their office. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people just uh, were just some of the most terrible people. And then mm-hmm. somehow I, I didn't understand because I was like, well, I thought like having all this money equated to some level of happiness. So I realized that it wasn't in the community that I was part of. And then at mm-hmm. the same time, I had all of this money and I still wasn't happy. I still had all the trauma that I had when I was younger. I still mm-hmm. didn't feel fulfilled. Right. And so there was this part of me where I realized that there was something deeper and wealth and po- popularity and this sort of sort of social status that people fall into wasn't it. Yeah. So the whole point wasn't for me to just go back, go to be poor. The whole, the whole point, I think, was to not identify with the excess and find balance with that and utilize it for good. You know, not just the materialistic sort of like buying things for myself, but actually doing something good with whatever it is that I, I made and not falling into a lot of these traps that people that make money fall into. Yeah. And so that is an example of the warrior stage. I was doing this because people told me they needed to do it. Yeah. Right. And then right. I went I went through that whole journey and realized like, hey, Wait, like, why am I, I doing, doing this? this? Yeah. I'm doing this because that's what I was taught. That's what the collective unconscious, this is what the warrior stage taught me to do. And, and you then know, at a this lot of point, people don't get out of that. Like you, like you made a conscious decision that this isn't for me. Why am I here? I don't, these people don't resonate with me. Like what, what am I doing? A lot of people don't have that kind of awakening and they kind of get caught in the rut and they're like, well, you know, uh, this is how I'm going to pay my bills. And then maybe they end up meeting someone and getting married and starting a family. And then they're like, oh shit, now I really can't leave because now I have all these responsibilities and these bills to pay. And now I'm stuck here. So it's takes a really, really brave person to kind of get out of this phase um, and leave their job and maybe go to the next phase to do something that is more fulfilling, especially if they have young kids. And you almost never see someone make major life changes or major career changes during the time when their kids are young. Because That's true. Because it's that, it's that pressure to provide. Right. Exactly. It's like an entirely different realm of thinking. This is the reason, this is one of the things that comes up in conversations when it comes to people that want to overthrow the government or they, they plan mm-hmm. for some sort of revolution or they, they, they ascribe to like the, this whole great awakening. It's like, that's fine for the people that are single, but the people that have children aren't just going to go and drop everything, their careers and everything behind to start right. a revolution. The one right. thing that we also need to acknowledge is that there are just some people that fall in line with the simplicity and the sort of like... I guess the convenience of this stage, there mm-hmm. are just some people that are just born to have families. There are just some people that are born to just work. Yeah. There are some people that are born to just, you know, uh, dance within the, the realm of their wealth. I think when it comes to the phases of life, this objective that maybe me and Jen are trying to reach is a lot more profound and meaningful and deep because me and Jen are very deep people. 
So if you're somebody that is looking for awakening, of course, the objective is to transcend this space. But if you find yourself just staying at the warrior stage and you're comfortable there and you don't really necessarily care about the mysteries in the universe, you don't necessarily care mm-hmm. about wanting to, to, to find out these sort of spiritual truths, you can stay there. That's fine. And that's your karma. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you want to do. So there are no good or bads here, but if your objective is to awaken to something much deeper, yeah, you're going to have to, you're going to have to get over this stage. You're going to have to, yeah. Transcend this stage. And it may not be until you're older and you're able, you know, a lot of people, and it's interesting with COVID, I feel like there's been kind of a collective awakening, awakening in this area where people are like, fuck that shitty job. I'm not going back to that. And I'm going to try something different. I'm already broke. Like I'm already at the bottom. So who cares? And there's like a little bit more, um, I don't, I don't know, but like people are just uh, taking more risk. I'm just, and even talking to my friend group, uh, people that I know are like taking more risk, maybe leaving their corporate jobs and going out on their own and, and doing things that they would have never done in the past. Yeah. The, the government, these corporations, the whole sort of typical business model that we ascribe to had people, uh, how would I say it it had people squeezed Squeezed. so tight (laughs) that they, they couldn't move. There was no consideration of an alternative. When you talk to a manager prior to COVID about the idea of working remotely, they're like, I don't trust you. Yeah. No way. If you're not at work, you don't have the discipline to do this. Right. You know, if you're not in the office, you're not working. Yeah. Yeah. you, You were forced into this realm of, of the unknown that everybody was curious about, but companies are worried. They're, they're the one main concern is money and they're not going to change if they don't have to. And the government's mm-hmm. a perfect example of that too. Like these corporations, if it's work, don't fuck with it, yeah. you know, but this, like you're right. Like the, the, the pandemic moved us into this space that people never experienced before. And at the same time, because even aside of that, like we're evolving at a much more accelerated pace. People are learning more through technology People are developing more efficient ways to work. And even without the sort of understanding of the benefits of working remotely, people are just already waking up to the fact that like, shit, like this is an old ass way of doing things. Mm -hmm. I think one major thing that comes up for people is that because things are happening so fast and there's such a scarcity of time when it comes to everything, people are trying to figure out an alternate way of trying to sort of soften the blow of that. Like they want more freedom. They're realizing that all of their time is dedicated to work. They're realizing that they're still miserable and they're still anxious. And I right. think people are starting to wake until like, hey, this is unnatural. You know, like there, there has to be another way. And I think that the pandemic was, you're absolutely right, was the perfect uh, catalyst for the, that change. The perfect catalyst for that change. Mm-hmm. Carl Jung says that the, the warrior stage is the most visited stage of life that people go back to or, or stay in. So mm-hmm. just to kind of summarize it, that the warrior stage is, is career driven goals like you're you have this willingness and want to make your mark on society, make a lot of money. And then once that starts to wither away and maybe you start to wake up to something much deeper, you realize that whatever it is that you're looking for, it's not found in here in this stage. It's understood in this stage, but it's not found in this stage. And so you enter into another phase, which is the statement phase. And this stage actually reminds me of uh, the heart and the throat chakra, because Mm -hmm. this is the bridge. This is the bridge from your sort of primitive tribal side to your spiritual side. This is where your heart starts to open up. Because if all your life up until that point, you've been told that money and wealth was the point, and then you went and you sought after it, and then you got it, and realized it wasn't there, 
there's a lot of change that goes through you. One is that one you feel lied to. And then two, you start questioning this entire system. Mm -hmm. Like, this is what I was programmed to want. And I'm still not happy. And so there's something else that starts starts to peek through. And this is the statement stage. Yeah. Where you're looking, you're finding that deeper meaning in life. You're less self-centered. Um, your values start to change. And you want yeah. to give back to society rather than take from it. And yeah. um, this is where you want to make your mark on your world, on the world. So yeah. for those people that are saying, fuck this warrior stage, I, you know, want to change jobs and find something that's more aligned to my purpose. You, congratulations, you are crossing over into the statement phase. Yeah. And Carl, Carl Jung says we go from egocentric to ecocentric, right? Yeah, this I is like sort that. of like the, the philanthropist sort of stage where we mm -hmm. realize, okay, it's not in the money. What, it's, what is it about then? It's about the people, right? We become more concerned with helping others, making an impact with the work and contributing to the good in society. Mm -hmm. This is where we start understanding true compassion. Yeah. Uh, he, Carl Jung calls it the psychological adolescence because it's the bridge between the material and the spiritual. So the focus is on altruistic lines of connection with others. We want to help the world as a way to help heal our own sort of selfishness. Because at this point, I, I do feel that people will realize that they were being selfish. Mm -hmm. They realize that they were being self-centered and self-serving. Mm -hmm. And at this point, they want to start giving back in a different way. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so my personal kind of story I wanted to bring up with this is that and it's interesting because I've noticed this, even if you, did, even if you didn't describe to the archetypes, mm -hmm. you notice this sort of progression and then slow return back to source in lots of people, even celebrities, for example. Yeah. You know, like celebrities, like, like what Jim Carrey was a perfect example of, of this thing that we're talking about. Oh my gosh, yeah. You know Huge. what I mean? Because he, he, he was Brand? somebody that... Oh man, another he one. He was like famous... Everybody loves him, still loves him, and he probably amassed lots and lots of money, and that should be it, right? Mm -hmm. But Jim Carrey just came out within the last few years that like he's approached this spiritual awakening, and he's just publicly saying, like, look, whatever you guys are looking for, whatever you guys think that my life is like, that's not where it is. Mm -hmm. You know, his happiness is in art. He's painting now. Like, he's giving talks on the, the sort of nature of awareness. He even looks like fucking Terrence McKenna. He totally is. He looks you crazy. Know? Yeah. 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 And, and, and so I, I had an emotional breakdown during this period. You know, I had suffered through a, a, a sort of bout of panic disorder, went through this recognition of my past family trauma. It was at this stage where I was like financially stable enough to begin reflecting on my past. And this is a really important point to make, which is if you're in the hustle and bustle of the machine and you have trauma behind you and you have trauma in your field, it becomes difficult to take a moment to actually reflect on that because mm -hmm. you're always busy. Yes. You can always put it on the back burner and hope for at a later date to address it. But the one thing that I noticed is that was there. But what happens, just like in Maslow's hierarchy of need, once you have you your your survival and your all of your comforts and your those things sort of satiated, you start being able to have the time to actually reflect on other things. It's so I had true. the financial stability. I had all everything that I needed. At one point, I found myself just sitting, asking these questions. And I think that's, this is the importance of the warrior stage because you create a platform of security. And once you have that security, then you can kind of take a step back and start asking those fundamental questions and, and, and going back through your lineage and asking those questions. And when I started inquiring with myself, that was when I finally had enough courage to go through my traumas. For sure. Know? I mean, you can't focus on that stuff if you're worried about how you're going to eat dinner tonight and, and lunch tomorrow. 
I mean, it's just And that could be a reason why a large part of our society doesn't have a chance or even opportunity to sit with their shadow or their traumas. Because if you got five kids at home, if you're having to work, you know, 50 hours a week, and this is, this is kind of the way that I feel like our government is, is, is organized mm-hmm. to keep you in this sort of this, this tireless phase of movement to where mm-hmm. you don't have any, any opportunity to think of anything else, you know. But if you find yourself, if you have enough time and enough stability to start asking those questions, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of like uh, when I used to watch these um, stories from Holocaust survivors yeah. of, of what it was like in the war. They, they don't talk about it for like 15 years. Mm-hmm. Like there were periods of time after they left, let's just say Auschwitz or a concentration camp where like their family members knew that it was a touchy subject. They would never ask him about it. And they didn't come out till like 20 years later, didn't feel comfortable enough to tell the story. But the reason why I bring it up is because when you're going through the, the trauma of a war, you don't have time to sit and reflect on your life. And it's not until the war ended for them where all of that, you know, that four or five years that they went and struggled through the war and concentration camps, that all came back and hit them at the same time. Mm-hmm. That was exactly what happened to me with my rec- with my um, revisiting sort of my the way that I grew up and my family trauma and my parents divorcing. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think I started to do the healing on myself by understanding the trauma that my family went through and the trauma that my family my my parents parents went through and that's where the healing starts. Right. And when you start the healing and you start focusing on not the anger that you feel but the understanding that hurt people hurt people and that those people were try- were doing the best that they can. They're doing the best you, they could, exactly. You can accept it. And so that's when the birth of compassion and love happens. And that's when the statement stage sort of happens. And this the is all like major inner child work. Yeah, major inner child work to work on that, that your your parents did the, the, the best that they could at the time with what they had, with the knowledge that they had, with the resources they had, with the love that they had. I mean, we are, we are not perfect and our parents aren't perfect either. And they have their own, their own issues and their own things that they were working on too, yeah. or maybe not working on just their own, their own shit in their field. Yeah. So. And it's like, it's crazy how we can only get to that understanding once we've experienced what it must be like to be them. Right. You know, yeah. that's literally what compassion means. And Deepak Chopra actually talked about this, the, the, the word compassion actually literally means to suffer with. Mm-hmm. It literally means to suffer with. It is the understanding that you and that other person suffer the same. Yeah. The archetypal journey of compassion and pain and, and trauma and, and the suffering that they talk about in the Buddhist precepts, we all go collectively through suffering together. And that's the one thing that brings us all together at the same time. Because the second you understand what suffering means, then you can think back at your father and you, instead of feeling anger over what it is that he did to you or, or you know, some sort of abuser, you could understand wholeheartedly what they must have been going through based off of how they grew up. And that's where you bridge the healing Mm -hmm. because that's where that compassion comes into the field. And you could, you know, create atonement for yourself, forgive yourself for a lot of things and realize that you were just putting yourself through this crazy hamster wheel of, of things that were more or less self-perpetuate and that didn't have anything to do with you. Right. And that's where that, that peace comes in. That peace comes in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We have someone coming on. A guest next week to lean Sophie and she's um, going to talk a lot about that. So if you guys are interested in that topic, definitely check in next week. Yeah. I'm excited about that. That's a quantum, quantum healer. Yeah. Quantum healer. And she does a lot of inner child work too. So I'm sure that we'll yeah. touch on, on, uh, we'll do a deeper dive on this topic. Yeah. 
Okay, so to summarize it, the, the, the statement phase is you're awakening to something much deeper. And in a lot of ways, um, this is the birth of awareness. This is the birth of spirit. And once the birth of spirit awakens, then you put yourself from the position of ego, because at that time, you don't know what that, that awareness or that spirit is. You think you're ego. You think you are everything you've accumulated. You think that you're your experience. But when that sort of crashes and you realize that that's not it, the spirit awakens and then you start perceiving life from a different vantage point, which is awareness. And you start actually being able to see all the inner workings of the ego from the space of awareness. So your shift in perception happens. And mm -hmm. then this is where you awaken to the spiritual phase, yeah. the spiritual phase, which to me equates to the thousand petal lotus or the crown chakra. This mm -hmm. is just, you're completely blown open and this is where the that, that sort of real true awakening happens. Mm -hmm. I, I've been caught, like definitely caught in the statement phase for a while. And I'm still there, right? Because I still have my nine to five job that I work every day that supports me. And, you know, that I've just have this, like, it's my little security blanket I can't let go of. But in my spare time, I'm doing things like this. I'm doing the podcast. I have, you know, other spiritual kind of ventures happening. And um, I feel like, because I've been devoting so much more time to that aspect of my life, I have been able to cross over a little bit into this, into the spirits stage, right? Um, yeah. I'm much more open-minded than I used, than I used to be. I'm mm -hmm. much less egotistical than I used to be even, even a year ago, you know, and I just think about how far I've come in one year, just mm -hmm. in my belief systems and, um, and, kind of questioning our reality more. You know, I didn't really question reality much and now that's all I do. I mean, I feel like that's all I think about all day long is questioning reality. Yeah, I almost feel like that that question, that willingness to question is what awareness does. Mm -hmm. Because before it's it's you're, you're speaking and you're perceiving through the realm of ego, all the things that we feel like we should be doing in order to sustain ourselves. But the one that I find myself doing is that once that inquiry starts happening, it, it, it opens up this entirely new field that we, maybe we didn't even realize was there. And that's where we start asking these sort of deep fundamental questions. But then I have to ask myself the same question that Sri Ramana Maharshi asked himself when he has the, that sort of the divine inquiry, which is who am I, mm -hmm. you know? And, and it is the I, the awareness that starts inquiring into all of these things. So it's acknowledging that you're starting to see life from a different vantage point, which is from the spirit. You know, and the interesting thing about this phase, um, this uh, spiritual phase, is this is the whole sort of like serpent putting its tail in its mouth sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Because we go from, you know, the, the athletic phase, which is the, the beginning and into the, 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 the athletic and then to the warrior. It's almost like um, you're climbing up to a really, really top, like really, really high hill. And then you start sort of scaling down it. It's like we go back to almost this place of the first premise, like simplicity. Mm -hmm. And this is why at the beginning of the podcast, I was talking um, when I said that quote from Carl Jung, where he was like that the first stage, the athletic stage is very, very similar to the spiritual stage because there's an innocence there. There's a simplicity there. There's this sort of return back to source. It's sort of like this uh, Christ in the desert moment and it's sort of like this Buddha underneath the Bodhi tree and venturing outside of the city walls. Like the Buddha went out there to find something and realized that all the things that he had been taught through his sort of royal upbringing, wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And what he realized was that 
where it was, where his humanness was, where his spirit was, was in the simplicity of source, like the simplicity of love, the simplicity of awareness. And there's nothing really complex about it. I mean, it is definitely complex. It is yeah. it's what encompasses the whole, but it's more simple than materialistic endeavors. Yeah. You know, this is uh, one of those things that I, I personally see very much in my mom. And I, I've been talking a lot about her, but she's been a really, really great inspiration to me because after you know we became adults and she fell more in line with um, her childlike innocence and herself, uh, there was this grace and this beauty that kind of fell over her where even she realized that she was a part of the game and she realized that you know she had a hand in it and then realized that it wasn't there and now she's at this space of just chilling. Like she's just in this space of like enjoying life, not taking things too seriously. And she very much reminds me of just this graceful, beautiful child. But I'm not talking about childlike innocence in the way that like an immature punk ass little two-year-old is. Yeah, I'm talking about once you experience. <laughs> they totally are little oh, punk man. asses. Two to but, three? Shit. God bless <laughs> all you parents a, out there with two to three-year-olds. The terrible twos. Mm. Yeah. I'm talking like the childlike innocence or this sort of grace that falls over you when you have enough experience to know. You, you, you basically, you have enough experience to, to understand what love means and why all of these phases worked in together are so important for your awakening. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you come back to this, this simplicity, not as a child in the, you know, the immature way, but as a child in that you're more open to learning. You're more open to truth and fun and beauty mm-hmm. because that's at the, the very basis of what true spirituality is about. You know what's sad about, about this phase is not everyone will reach it. And, and the reason for that is because of the concept that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And this doesn't resonate with everyone, especially, especially because of those indoctrinated religious beliefs because in order to kind of achieve this phase like you have to believe that you're a spiritual being and a lot of people don't believe that so this is kind of this is a tricky one i think it's definitely a tricky one especially if you're like a neuroscientist or you're somebody that ascribes more to like that sort of sam harris type of vibe if you're somebody that's more of a realist and Mm -hmm. uh, you see the whole idea of spirituality is just more of an idea. You know, the interesting thing, I was actually uh, listening to a podcast between two of my favorite authors, Deepak Chopra and Marianne Williamson the other day. Marianne Williamson has a podcast and she brought Deepak Chopra on and they were some of the most prominent figures in my life during 2012. Mm -hmm. And they were actually the pioneers during that time. Like they were at the forefront of a lot of this new age stuff. Totally. You know, he wrote like the the, the shadow effect and how to know God. Like Deepak Chopra has written over like 40 books and Marianne Williamson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Marianne Williamson, she, you know, she wrote Return to Love, like she uh, is a really huge advocate for A Course in Miracles. Anyway, so mm-hmm. Deepak Chopra came onto the podcast and some of the stuff he was saying, I, I couldn't believe, but I could believe at the same time. Deepak Chopra said he was going through a sort of spiritual awakening. They were saying during 2012, there was this, elo- this, this, uh, this feeling that you were close to something. And I know what that feeling was because 2012 through 2016 were some of the most magical times of my life because... The procession of the equinox was happening. You had that sort of 2012 Mayan calendar thing. It was that period of time where I felt like the New Age community was united. There was mm-hmm. this common commonality between everybody, and it was a sort of even playing field. And I feel felt so much love from that community during that time. But mm-hmm. what ended up happening? You know, a lot of changes in our government, a lot of um, 
toxic sort of platforms came into play when it came to social media. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like people sort of lost their perspective a little bit. And Deepak Chopra and Melanie Williamson were openly admitting that they thought that life was going to get better during that time, but they're acknowledging the fact that it actually got a lot worse. It got a lot and worse. It got mm-hmm. a lot worse. And Deepak Chopra was just like, I'm going through this spiritual awakening right now. And he's in this phase of life. And it may just come with age because he's obviously getting older where he's not imposing, not not, impo- not imposing, but he's not putting himself out there as much as he used to. Mm-hmm. He's less interested in debating with people like Sam Harris or like, um, you know, Michael Schumer or these these people that just openly just criticize him all day long. Mm-hmm. And he's more interested in cultivating and nurturing his own spirituality. So yeah. he's finding himself more in this sort of like this, uh, you know, like hermit card in the tarot. Like yeah. he's embodying his spirituality and it's making things a lot more simple for him, mm-hmm. which is a big deal for Deepak Trump because he's That's somebody huge. that was in the spotlight for a long time. A long time. Right? Mm-hmm. So he going yeah. through all these different phases and now he's at this stage where he's like approaching simplicity. He's, he's approaching the things that matter to him, which is his family. And of course mm-hmm. he still teaches, but he doesn't feel compelled to like really, really just like stake his he doesn't, like he doesn't spear feel in the to debate. And exactly. I, I totally get that. I feel like that's all anything is anymore on social media is a debate about I'm right, you're wrong. And yeah. there's no, I haven't seen a middle ground in a really long time. Really well, the one time. thing, the one thing that I, I realized from this podcast was that a really profound understanding, which I, I kind of knew, but it's it puts it in a perspective when someone like Deepak talks about it, which is there was this feeling at that time that the good was going to overcome the bad. There was this feeling at that time that love was going to conquer this entire fucking planet, and I think that's always definitely something to strive for. And even right now in 2021, this is something that I still believe, and this is something that I still ascribe to. But one thing that I think I the realization that I came to from that, that podcast is that it isn't about overcoming the dark or it isn't about overcoming the bad because you can't do it because that contrast is so necessary to your growth. Mm-hmm. That contrast is so necessary to your journey to get to the understanding of love. So it isn't about overcoming that. It's about accepting that on this planet, on this earth, this is the battlefield to which awakening happens. And it's always going to be this way to some degree. I mean, you can look back at our history. I mean, we have wars for thousands and thousands of years. Somehow history continuously repeats itself. We've mm-hmm. never had a time where life had gone into this full utopian society where we've experienced nothing but happiness. So why right. pretend that we can get to that place? We can always strive for it. But I don't think the point is creating utopian society. I think the point is creating that utopian society in yourself. Trying to find the peace within yourself. That's an excellent way to say it. Absolutely. Yeah. So this sort of conclusion is this is the spirit's journey from source back to source. It is awareness to ego and back to awareness. It is simplicity to self-induced complication back to simplicity. It is a point of awareness to a point of focus and back to a place of awareness. It is from open to closed to open, you know? So mm-hmm. like when I think of children and elders, like they're simple. There's there's something graceful that comes over like an elderly person. Maybe that's the reason why I liked volunteering for elderly people because they know the game that's going on yeah. and they know and they shake their finger at you and they're like, oh, you're going to see, you're going to see. You just wait. <laughs> you just wait, you know? Mm-hmm. Like teens and adults are like deliberately complex. But elders, they, they don't return to this sort of immature form of, of childhood. It's a simple acceptance of recognition of what is. 
And as long as you practice that, that acceptance of what is, then you can allow everything to be as it is and continue being a child and continue playing and not seeing the world as violent and evil because you will have cultivated that self-love within yourself and realizing that that's the most important piece. The most important piece is what you yourself can control, which is your own love and the way that you treat other people. And I think that's the point. I think that's the part with you that you can take into the other life. Agreed. You know what I mean? Well said. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the, these are, <laughs> these are Carl Jung's four phases of life. Aesthetic phase, athletic phase, the warrior phase, statement phase, and the spiritual phase. And you could be in all four of these at once. You can be in two of these. You can go yep. back and forth between whichever ones. Mm-hmm. But if you want to know where you fall in the spectrum, um, look online. See if uh, you know there are some things that you can extract as far as wisdom from these. Yep. And, and, and remember, it's not about mastery. It's just about recognition and um, awareness of where you are in your life. So yeah. I really enjoyed this. And I... and. I'm not a huge fan of this framework per se, but um, I did find it helpful. You know, whenever I was writing notes for this show, I, I found it really helpful um, in thinking about my own life and my own stories. I would like us to do a podcast on Erickson's framework because I think it's Erickson's? really interesting too. Yeah. Well, you can help me with that because I, I've never gone into that. I've always been into Carl Jung, but if yeah. it's anything like this, as far as archetypes, I think that'd be a worthy conversation. Yeah, yeah. It's um uh, it doesn't have a lot of the spiritual component like Jung does, but he does talk about whenever you're an elderly person how you reflect back on your life. And then yeah. that's how, you know, that's the phase of your life when you when you decide if it was all worth it and if you made the right yeah. decisions and if you didn't. So, um I think it's interesting. We'll have to we'll have to do another episode on that if if our listeners are interested. Yeah, the one thing that I really enjoy about these archetypes, just archetypes in general, is that they're archetypes for a reason. They're archetypes because we all have this sort of common this this mm-hmm. sort of common, common thread, thread amongst all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, so that this creates this automatic understanding of unity between your fellow man. Yeah. Everybody goes through all of these archetypes. Everybody goes through pain. Everybody goes through suffering. It's interesting because when you're in these sort of like uh, immature stages, like when we're in like the maybe the warrior stage or the athletic stage, we don't realize automatically that people go through the same experiences because we're too busy worrying about our own. Our own, yeah. But the beautiful thing about the, when we start operating from awareness, we start realizing how similar we all really are in the fact that we go through these things together. So if we're going through these things together, then that creates this automatic sense of unity amongst all of us being one. And we can use every single person that comes across our field as an opportunity to grow and learn and to further along in our process of understanding source and God. Agreed. Be kind. Be kind to others. Be kind. Be kind and rewind. If you guys got a VHS that's a couple (laughs) days past due, make sure you rewind it before returning it. You know it pisses those people off something awful when you don't. Yeah. But they do have those super fast rewinders. (laughs) It's like, and it's done. Yeah. And I guess the metaphorical aspect of that is like if you have to rewind your tape a little bit and go back into the athletic phase of the warrior stage, it's totally cool. You can do this as many times as you want. That's right. You know, but just know that however many times you do it, there's a deeper aspect of you that needs to go through the curriculum in order to awaken to source. And you'll know that you're there once you start finding yourself asking those fundamental questions and giving, not giving the friend hug, but like the two-handed hug to the people that are in your life, mm-hmm. you know, and giving a little wink and a nod and a smile and doing good things for other people 
And obviously, at, at the same time, being good to yourself and loving yourself. You'll know that you're there when you love yourself. You know? Yeah. So thank you guys for tuning in to Buy Nobody's Podcast. If you're on YouTube, like and subscribe. Do all the things. Really, really helps us out if you want to see the videos of our episodes. If you go into the description on uh, the podcasting platform that you're on, whether or not you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you go into the description, it'll show a link to our YouTube and you can see the episodes. And yeah, like and subscribe. If you have any questions, you can email us at divine nobody's podcast at gmail.com you could also go to our website or you can go to our instagram just like the young lady said at the first beginning of the episode other than that until next time friends namaste namaste